We're going to turn to God's Word. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Psalm 135. We'll be reading that in a minute, but it'll also be on the screen, so you can follow along. So today is a significant day in the life of the church. Um, we're not only adding new members to the church, but in our all-church meeting later, we're, we're kicking off the new season, as it were, of ministries. Uh, and you'll be hearing from different people about different ministries and what we're planning for the year ahead. <clears throat> but before we charge into another year, with all of its opportunities and challenges, with, with all of its triumphs and setbacks, refreshments and sufferings, we're going to remember who it's all for. <clears throat> Why are we all here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why does it all matter? What we're going to do this morning is just we're going to return to the Lord. We're going to remember our God whom we serve <clears throat> and what He has come to do in this world. So unlike the previous Psalms we looked at, Psalm 135 is not about any one specific situation. It's about the Lord Himself. So let's read Psalm 135, <clears throat> and then we're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with His truth. Sorry, I got a tickle in my throat. Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our God is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the sea and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of man, human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. 
Lord, may the effect of this psalm, having considered it more carefully, may the effect of that be that we will want to praise you, and, and not only want to, but have good reason that we know, yes, yes, you are to be praised. That you'd stir our hearts with the memory and the, and the, the sight of all of your wonderful majesties which are in this psalm. Help us. We need that sight this morning. And we expect that you will do it because you love us. And your spirit is here to bless. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, the psalm begins with a call to praise the Lord. And that means to deeply appreciate him. Yes, thank you. That's very helpful. <laughs> It starts with praise the Lord to appreciate Him. Verses 1 to 3, the word is praise. In verses 19 to 21, the word is bless. Those are words for worship, for extolling the virtues of God, for gratefully acknowledging who He is and what He's done. So like two bookends, the psalm has this, these praise words, this, this call to praise God, and then in between in the rest of the psalm is the reasons for doing it. Reasons that this, pra this praise, this blessing is right and, and it's appropriate. It, it explains why it's fitting for us to not only sing songs of praise, but to orient our entire lives around God, to put our trust in Him at all times. I'm going to point out in the psalm four reasons to praise God, four reasons to orient our lives around Him. These are things about God that never change. These are things that are true every day of the year, whether you're suffering or doing well, whether your plans come to pass or they're totally frustrated. These are the foundation for stability and sanity and hope in a world that's full of trouble, but also full of opportunity. So let's look at these. Four reasons to praise God no matter what happens in the world. The first is this. It's because the Lord is good. <clears throat> the Lord is good. Verse 3, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. Good means desirable, to be approved of, whole, sound, pleasant. This is God. There is nothing bad in him. <laughs> in fact, he's the only one who is good all the way through and through, the very definition, the very heart and soul of goodness. A man once said to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus wasn't denying that it was right to call him good because Jesus is God in the flesh. He just wanted the man to realize the significance of what he's saying in calling him good. Only God is good. Only in God is there no imperfection. Nothing that needs to be repented of. Nothing that's wrong. He is pure, 100% unadulterated good. And everything that he says and everything he does is consistent with his goodness. So the implication, of course, from what Jesus said is that we are not good 
if only God is good, then what else does that mean about you and me? We are not good. Paul said of all of us in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. In other words, the, the me, apart from God's intervention, does not have good things in it. Probably nobody is as bad as he or she can be. I mean, if, if that was true, we could not live in the world. It would be utter anarchy and chaos. Nobody could live here if we were all totally bad. But all of us have our moments of dishonesty, of selfishness, of arrogance, and things like that. We are not in God's category. We are broken. We are unreliable, fallen people. But God is none of those things. Now, it's interesting that the psalmist starts here in his reasons for praising God, probably because of this. You won't praise God if you don't believe He's good. You won't do it. If we think He, de- he, he doesn't deserve to be celebrated, if we think he, He's not honorable, then we're not going to make much of Him. We might sing the songs, we might say the right things, but inside, our hearts can be far away from Him. Maybe because He hasn't answered a prayer in the way that you want it. Maybe because you suffer and He seems not to be there for you. Maybe because you're offended by something that He does or that He commands in the Scriptures. It offends your sensibilities. We can think that God is not good for many reasons. And if that's going on in our hearts, then a call to praise the Lord just seems like an unreasonable request. It's like a a celebration that's forced on you, like a goodbye party for a co-worker that you never liked. Um, You go to the party, you'll sign the card, but you really don't want to be there, right? That can be in our hearts towards God. But Scripture, which is trustworthy in all that it says, tells us that God is good, and He's good all the time because He does not change. He is thoroughly desirable to be approved of, pleasant. We take that as an article of faith, and it's the starting point of all praise. But there's evidence to support it. It's not just an article of faith. The next thing the psalm tells us is specifically how God has shown His goodness. It's in how He has been good to bad people, (laughs) which is us. The second reason to praise God is that the Lord saves by grace. The Lord saves by grace. Verse 4, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel as his own possession. The NIV says his treasured possession. The King James, his peculiar treasure. I love those words, treasured. Now this is a song that Israel would sing. And verse 4 is a reminder of God's dealings with them as a people. God chose to treat the people of Israel differently than all the other nations on the earth. Uniquely, specially in a treasured sort of way. He said things like, I will be their God and they will be my people. 
I will dwell among them. That was visibly demonstrated in the presence of the tabernacle or the temple. I will give them my laws, which are for their good. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. Jeremiah 32, 4. God made Israel his treasured possession, which meant they are going to know his love. They're going to know his favor. They're going to know his closeness in a way that no other nation is going to. Now, we can understand something like that if the person or the the thing that, you're, that you love or choose is adorable, like pleasing, you give me all sorts of great feelings because you're so amazing and wonderful. We can understand choosing and making a treasured possession out of something or someone that's adorable. We're about to get a dog in our house. Her name is Willow, and we're going to get her tomorrow morning. Now, I like dogs but I don't like what goes along with having a dog. The hair everywhere. (laughs) The maintenance. (laughs) The cleanup. I've had more than one person say, you've been warned. But we're getting a dog anyway. Why? Because she's adorable. (laughs) And already trained. Yay. So when we met her, she laid down at Sarah's feet, which I understand is a sign of friendship. So cute. (laughs) That's not how God chose Israel as his own possession. He chose a people based on nothing in them. In fact, despite the fact that they had some serious problems. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. This is going up on the screen so you can see the beauty of this. I've drawn attention to a few things in bold. Here's how God chose Israel. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. That's Psalm 135 language. Out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Look carefully at that statement. For the reason God chose Israel to be his treasured possession. The Lord has chosen you because, because of what? Because you were dominant, because you were a mighty nation, more in number than others, bigger and better, powerful and prosperous, world leaders. None of that. You weren't that. Why then? It is because the Lord loves you. (laughs) Just because. I love you because. No reason is given. In fact, despite the fact, you weren't that amazing. This is the people that also went on to make a golden calf and worship it after God saved them. And they presented his calf and said, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. They did that. 
This was in their heart when, they, when he chose them. This is the people who wanted to go back to Egypt, not to the land that God was going to give them. This is the people that were stiff-necked complainers. You know, you've given me manna bread, but where's the meat? Okay, you've given me meat and manna bread, but still, where's the water? I mean, they just on and on and on. This was a grumbling people. They, did not, they weren't adorable. <clears throat> and yet, God said, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to make you my treasured possession. And you're going to be close to me. And I'm going to make you know my favor, my favor just because. <laughs> Friends, that, exact, that is exactly what God does today through Jesus Christ. He sees all of humanity. No one does good, not even one. That's Romans 3.12. We've all blown it. We all have our sins. We don't deserve to be close to the God who is good. What we deserve is separation from this good God. Isaiah 59.2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. But for reasons only known to him, he says, but I'm going to set my love on this one and that one. I'm going to bring you close to me. I'm going to make you mine. And so he sends his son Jesus to bear the penalty for our sins on the cross to satisfy justice and remove the offense and reconcile us to him. And we trust that to be true. As we trust that to be true, then we see that the Lord saves us by grace. He saves us through faith and not by works. Grace is His undeserved favor to sinners who deserve only His judgment. And as we, we trust in Jesus as our sin bearer, we are swept up into this eternal love of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And the New Testament uses this language of treasured possession to describe those for whom God has done that. To the Roman church, Paul described them as, you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, who are loved by God. You belong, you're loved. That's treasured possession language. He charged the elders of the church in Ephesus to care for the church of God which he obtained or purchased with his own blood. To the Corinthian church, Paul said, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. <laughs> this is not ownership that is oppressive or shuts down our humanity or robs us of our opportunities and of joy. Quite the opposite. It's God bringing us to himself so that he can pour out his goodness on us. Listen to this language of treasured possession in God's dealings from the prophets Zephaniah 3.17, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's how He treats His people. Jeremiah 32.41, I will rejoice in doing them good. God enjoys doing good to the people who are His in Christ. He enjoys it. He loves to do that. Delights in that. Zechariah 2.8, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. 
you know what the apple of your eye is, right? That person you coddle, and you'd be very upset if anything happened to the apple of my eye. God says, that's you for me. <clears throat> Here's the implications of all that. To be God's treasured possession is to be forgiven all of your sins and not be condemned before His throne of judgment. It's to be safely in His good graces forever, the recipient of all of His promises for your good. It's to become a family member, a child of God, and treated with all the love and attentiveness that should go along with that. And since none of that is based on being good, then it means it is open to everyone. We can all get in on this. Anybody can get on this. No, nobody is excluded. The only entrance requirement is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. From Acts 16. <laughs> Isn't that the best news you've ever heard? The greatest thing in the universe is yours by believing in Jesus. Nothing else by just saying, yeah, I need that. I need the Savior. And God, you are the source of life. So I'm, I'm, I'm going after it. <laughs> we talked last week about brothers dwelling in unity. This is the foundation of that unity. It's people who are humbled by grace. We all realize we don't deserve anything from God, but God has been merciful to us, and he delights in us. So let's, let's join on that basis. <laughs> That's what makes us humane toward one another. Forbearing, compassionate, sympathetic. It's the only reality that can bring us together as brothers who dwell in unity. Let's continue. Here's the third reason the psalmist gives to praise the Lord. It's because the Lord is sovereign over everything. Comes from verses 5 to 7. I'll just read verse 6. Gets the heart of it. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever He pleases, He does. Now here's a great truth for which we can praise the Lord. The Lord who is good and who chooses a people to be His treasured possession has the power and the authority to do all the good that His heart desires for them. <laughs> Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. That means everywhere. There is no place where God cannot do all the good that He wants to do. From commercial airline flights to space exploration, from mining shafts to mountaintops, from boardrooms to government buildings, from sandy beaches to the deepest trenches in the ocean, God is sovereign. He is in control. Nobody can override his decisions. No one can prevent him from accomplishing his will. Isaiah 14 says, For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? He said that about freeing his people from the Assyrians who were ruling over them. He says if God wants to get rid of the Assyrians, he can do that. And he did do that. If God plans it, then it will happen, end of story, even if it means defeating an entire nation. That's what we call God's sovereignty. 
He has the right and the power to do anything that he wants to. Now, that would be a terrifying thing if God were evil and could inflict any evil thing he wanted on the world. But God is good. And God has set his affections on those whom he's made his special treasure through Jesus Christ. So that means, and this is what leads to praise from his people, it means that he has the unlimited power and authority to do you the good that he wants to do. He loves you, believer, like a husband loves a bride or like a father loves his child, and he isn't limited in what he can do to show that love. Earthly husbands and fathers can't do all that they would like to do for their wife and kids. We have limitations, not the least of which is our sinfulness. And we don't love the way we should. But beyond that, we don't have the power to heal all their sicknesses. We don't have the money to pay for everything that would be good for them to have. We can't guarantee them jobs or that they won't get in a car accident or have their identity stolen. But God can actually do those things. Now, this, of course, is the great dilemma that many people have with God. Because the world is full of evil and suffering. And, and Christians, the people whom God has chosen as His treasure and delight, we suffer from evil, sometimes more than those who are not Christians. Right now, Afghan believers in Christ are being killed by the Taliban. I have that firsthand from a missionary friend of mine. His name is Tom Ward. Tom was a missionary in Pakistan for many years, ministering to the Muslims, then in London, and now in the U.S. And when he was in London, he had the pleasure of leading a Muslim man to Christ. This man was from Afghanistan. That man, after becoming a believer, moved back to Afghanistan, where he followed Jesus, and he also helped the Americans to keep peace well, when the Taliban moved in, Tom began getting texts from this man. His name is Jacob. The text said to this effect, We are trying to leave because if the insurgents find me, they will kill me. Please contact whoever you can to help us get, get out. And so there were several days of texts showing the sequence of events as he's trying to get to the airport and then get through the all the things necessary to get the right papers and to talk to the right people and so forth. And there was this tension and didn't know how it was going to go. Eventually, Jacob did leave. He's back in England. His wife and daughter are still in Afghanistan. So he escaped, but many have not. And many of them will be killed. So the dilemma is, how can God allow that to happen to his treasured possession. The way that many answer this dilemma is to say either it's because God is not good, he doesn't care, or because God is not sovereign, he can't prevent it. Because we don't know how to reconcile our suffering with the God who says he delights in us and has all power to do good to us. So we can default to a functional belief, even if it's not our professed belief, that God is either not good or not sovereign. Otherwise, bad things wouldn't happen. And when either one of those things is operating in our hearts, then we might sing the praise songs, but we don't really mean them. 
Well, Psalm 135, which is absolute truth, says that God is both good and sovereign. Verse 3, the Lord is good. Verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does. He is good. He is sovereign. So how do we reconcile that with our actual life experience? Well, part of the answer has to be an admission that we don't fully know how to reconcile it. We just don't know. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Why one Christian is going to be killed today while we live in comfort, why one person has chronic disease and another person is healthy, that is beyond our figuring out. We are not going to know the answer to those things. We have to live with some mystery. But we can also say this, if we take it at face value, that God is both good and sovereign and that He loves His people intensely, and we should take it at face value, then it has to mean that our suffering is an evil thing that God allows for some ultimate good in our lives. It has to mean that because He is good and He does love us. That's exactly how Joseph understood what happened to him. His brothers sold him into slavery, and they convinced their dad that he was killed by a wild animal. And Joseph said to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Unbeknownst to any of them, to to the brothers or Joseph, God intended that their evil actions would bring about Joseph's rise to power in Egypt, where he would stockpile grain and save not only the people of Israel, but also the people of Egypt. It's an example of how God used an evil action to bring life to many. And the ultimate evil action that God used to do that with is the cross of Jesus Christ. The most evil thing that has ever happened on this planet is the crucifixion of God's beloved and perfect Son at the hands of evil people. But by that death, Jesus brings life to the nations, as many as believe in Him for salvation. So believers can rest secure and we can praise God daily in the knowledge that the Lord is good He loves us deeply. He's in control of the world, every detail of it. And any evil that He allows to touch us has to have some ultimate good purpose in it. We probably won't know what it is until we're on the other side. And then we'll know. We'll say, okay, that makes sense. We have to be like Job when he was destroyed. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshiped God on the worst day of his life, and so can we. The antidote to fear is to pray and worship and leave things in God's loving hands, knowing that he's good and sovereign. Much more could be said, but let's move on. Here's the fourth reason to praise the Lord. It's because the Lord will vindicate his people. He will vindicate his people. That's the point of verses 8 to 14. I'll just read verse 14. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. This statement follows several verses in which the psalmist recounts how the Lord delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. 
And in the process, defeating the mighty kings, defeating Pharaoh, defeating all the kings that were in the land that God was going to give the people. So it's a history of despised and oppressed people who are liberated and given a land and then put in its place of honor. That was their vindication. That's how they were proven to be God's treasured possession. That's how they were compensated for their suffering and treated like sons and daughters of God. But notice the tense in the psalm is future, not past. The Lord will vindicate His people. So this psalm looks beyond history, and it gives a promise for the future. It says, this episode of the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, this is pointing to something beyond that. This is pointing to a promise that God makes to His treasured possession, which is believers in Jesus Christ. To people like Jacob in Afghanistan. And to all believers who suffer for their faith. There will be vindication. The reality is, today and tomorrow and to the end of this world, Christians will look like and be treated as fools because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18 And to whatever degree God allows in His sovereign wisdom, you will be hated by all on account of my name. Matthew 10.22 these are the realities that accompany following Jesus in this life. Paul said to Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Whether that persecution is just harsh words, whether that's job loss, whether that's jail time, or having the Taliban enter your house and kill your family, that is all part of the cost. That is what it looks like to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And ultimately, it's our sovereign God who decides which of those it's going to be. But there will be vindication. Because as the prophet Zechariah said, he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. And he won't let it go. The vindication is this. All suffering will be, will be compensated for. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4.17 There's eternal reward for faithfulness. Also, we will be resurrected. Paul said of the body of a believer, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. We will come into a vast inheritance to, as Peter says, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. <laughs> those are Scripture promises, and they will come to pass for those who belong to Jesus Christ through faith. The Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. The alternative to trusting in this God is to lose everything. This is what will happen to those who won't trust the Lord and worship Him alone. It's the point of verses 15 to 18. 
They bear reading in full, so let's put those on the screen also. Verses 15 to 18 in Psalm 135, it says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So the picture here is of a statue, some likeness. It's on the mantle. Maybe it's an animal. Maybe it's a conception of some deity. It's carved out of wood, and it's overlaid and plated with gold or silver. And a person offers incense to it, or they, they pray to it, or they leave little sacrifices at its feet. And they do this because they hope that they're going to get something that they really want. Maybe it's fertility. Maybe it's just uh, better crops that year. Maybe it's victory over enemies. Whatever it is, they think, I can get it if I do the right things with this idol here. But the psalmist makes this rational observation. He says, you know that statue? It's just a block of wood. <laughs> it's just metal. It, it, it's, it's not alive. <laughs> It can't speak. It can't hear. It doesn't see anything. There's no breath of life there. It's just a piece of wood. And then comes the warning. All who trust in them become like them. To trust in an idol doesn't give you life. It actually robs you of life. You become lifeless. So how does that speak to us today? Because we don't have one of those on our fireplace but we do have our idols. They aren't on the mantle, but we have things that we put our hope in for things we want. We have gods that we worship, health and beauty, the approval of our social network, advanced education, financial security. There are things that we look to and say, this will give me happiness. But the warning holds for us too. If you trust in those things, you will lose your life. What you thought was going to be the answer, what you thought was going to give you peace of mind and rest for your weary soul, if that's not God who is good and sovereign and gracious to sinners, then whatever it is you trusted, it's going to take away your life. You're going to lose everything in the end. Jesus said in Mark 8.36, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We don't want that outcome for anybody. We want the alternative, which is to trust in the Lord, who makes undeserving people his treasured possession through the atoning death of his Son. That's where life is found. That's where we find all that we need to walk through this life and to enter into salvation and eternal life. So let me close with this. This good news, this gospel, is the reason we exist as a church. The Lord is good and worthy to be praised. In our Sunday gatherings, in our discipleship context during the week, in our homes, in our workplaces, it's all for the Lord who is good. This is the saving message for the world. And we want to call people into it and see this God so that they too can join us and praise Him and have life and not become like a block of wood and lose your humanity and lose everything.
And so that's why we gather. That's why we're in this room. It's why you're going to hear all these things in the meeting to follow, the things that we're trying to do. This gospel is the pathway to salvation, to knowing this God and being his treasured possession. And that's what we want for everybody. So let's put our trust in him. (laughs) Praise isn't only a response from grateful hearts. It's also an act of faith when your heart is weary with life. So we're going to end with a praise song. And depending on where you're at, you may be distracted by whatever you read in the news yesterday or whatever's going on in your life, and you don't feel like God is sovereign and God is good and all that. So what you do is you, you sing the song and you say, I'm going to by faith sing this, and I'm going to believe this, and I'm going to tell my soul, that's who lives. <laughs> And then maybe my emotions will follow after. But it's true whether my emotions are there or not. So let's talk to ourselves. Bill's going to come up with the worship team, and we're going to praise God. So let me just close with prayer. Lord, we do, we do honor you. You are good. You are in control of everything. You have called a people to be your treasured possession who are going to praise you forever. And the alternative is losing everything. But Lord, I pray that no one in this room loses everything. I pray that you would do that choosing and awaken them to these glories and cause them to say yes to you, yes to Jesus. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.